We're, we're looking at a passage, uh, this is Esther chapter 5 that we're in, and we're going to kind of break it into sections as we go through. But we have been talking about this, and, and it's interesting because this is, this is very similar to some of the things we, we just sang about. But I was thinking about this as I was getting this ready, and, and now I, I'm thinking how foolish this is. But um, there was a clothing that was popular in the 90s, in the 80s into the 90s and early 2000s. Um, it was uh, No Fear Clothing. You remember that? Some of you do. Um, if you go to thrift stores, you'll see it. Uh, uh, and, then, and I remember when No Fear Clothing came out, um, I was working with some teenagers, and, and, and I asked one teen, I said, you, he had something like that on. I said, you really like that? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. It kind of captures the mindset of my generation, you know, living without fear, no boundaries, no worries, just that kind of go-for-it mentality. And I thought, okay. That's cool, whatever. And um, the, the interesting thing was, about a month later, this, uh, this young man, he came to me, and he says, I, I need advice. There's this girl I like, and I'm not sure how to go about this. And, he, and, he, and finally, we were talking a little bit. He goes, I want to ask her out, but I'm really scared. And it's me being the sensitive guy that I am. I wanted to say, dude, put your shirt on. No boundaries. Go for it. Live life on the edge. Wimp. But I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But uh, it occurred to me, you know, why was that shirt so popular? Why was that saying no popular? So popular. Uh, uh, because we all face fears. That's why. We all have big fears. We have small fears. We have personal fears. We have community fears. And we want to believe that we have the ability to not be fear- fearful. But I mean, you don't see a lot of no fear around anymore because people started figuring out a t-shirt doesn't cut it when you're dealing with difficult issues. A shirt cannot address the yearnings of my heart, the fears of my heart. And this is reality for us. We find ourselves in situations that are fearful. What do I do? What do I do? Do I take a risk or do I pull back, fight or flee? Where do you find hope? Where do you find strength in the midst of your fears? Where can I find that ability to step out in faith? I want to do that. But where do I find that? Hope in the midst of fears. And last week, we really addressed this. We talked about David and Goliath. And we spent some time there because that's a very important lesson for us to learn there. But here now, we're going to see this courageous woman. She's facing great fear. And she becomes an example for us. She becomes, in in, in this passage, our mediator. She becomes the mediator for the Jews, actually. But she becomes an example of that. So I want you to remember the theme of the book of Esther. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. This is the whole book of Esther. This is the whole book of the Bible. This is all throughout the Bible, this this theme that's going on. So two weeks ago, real quick, we kind of, just, just to review, two weeks ago we looked at Esther chapter 4. And there's this decree, remember, all the Jews are to be killed. Uh, Mordecai is the uncle of Esther. Mordecai is uh, just like a government official. Esther has become the queen, which basically means nothing in terms of power. It just means that she pleases the king, and that's it, right? So they're messaging back and forth because Mordecai is devastated by this decree, and he tells her, you have to go see the king. And she explains to him, there's this rule. It's a law of the, of the Persians. And the law is when the king is in his inner chamber where he does his business, no one is allowed to walk in 
No one. Unless he summons them. If someone walks in without being summoned, their only hope is that he'll extend his scepter. And we looked at a picture of one. And and they touch his scepter and he kind of commutes the death sentence right there on the spot and and allows them to speak their peace. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. And then, you know, if you remember, Esther basically was made queen because of her ability. This always seems so... Yeah, what you, her ability to perform in bed. That's why she was made queen. And she tells Mordecai, he hasn't asked to see me for a month. And she's thinking, you know, obviously the implication is I'm out of favor. And you want me to walk into that inner area and start speaking to him when he has already basically by his, he's demonstrated he doesn't want to see me because he's not asking for me. And she's saying, that's death. You're just asking me to commit suicide. And then if you remember, uh, Mordecai, it's like he preaches to her. He starts talking about, you know, that, that salvation is going to come to the Jews. He says, we have a God who's made a covenant with us. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise keeper. We just sang that. He's a promise keeper. And so he said, it may be that you've been brought to this position for this very moment, But he tells her, don't think you're going to live if you don't do this. You're a Jew. You will be killed. Don't think. But he says, but God will find a way to save the Jews. Basically, he says that. He basically preaches the gospel to her. We have this God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise keeper. He's made us a promise. I'm banking on that promise. So we're going to be saved. Whether you do anything or not, we're going to be saved. But if you don't do anything, there's a good chance you'll be killed anyways. And so she says, okay, he convinces her. And she tells him, all right, you get all the Jews, fast and pray in Susa. Get them all to fast and pray. I'm going to fast and pray with the people around me, and then I'm going to go before the king. And she, and she utters those words, if I perish, I perish. All right? So what is going on? At this moment, as far as she can see, God is not doing anything. She can't see God doing anything. But she's decided to trust that God will keep his promise. She's decided to step out in faith, but she recognizes even if God keeps his promise, I still might not live. And I'm willing to take that chance. And so here we see the courage of the mediator. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw, the queen, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. All right? So we have this, we have this crazy law, right? But you know what? If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you're the king, you have to have some sort of control over who gets to see you and how, because you can only do so much during the day. And so what do you do? You institute this law, and this law probably preceded him. It's, it, we know it was in, in effect in other kingdoms also, something very similar to this. And so you put in this law so that just not any old, every old person who thinks they got something to say to you can walk in the door, right? They have to, they have to be summoned. In other words, they're probably going to have to submit something, and then it comes through people. It comes to the king. He decides what he's going to deal with. He says, summon this one, summon this one, summon. Don't summon that one. Don't summon that one. And if they show up, I'll deal with them. And so that's why there's a law like this, because everybody wants a piece of you, and you've got to control the demands of the people who want to see you. 
And she does this. If you, if, it's very interesting. She does this very carefully. It says Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court. Okay, we have to understand. It's not like it's just a room like this that's empty and the king's sitting on his throne looking for something to do. There's all his people. There's people around. There's people with business that need transactions that need to be made, business that needs to be taken care of, right? So she walks in the door at the back and she just quietly stands, unobtrusively. She just stands. See, I think she's figured the worst thing she could do is go, hey, 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 and come marching to the front, Right? And so she just quietly stands in the back, right? She stands in the back until the king sees her. He sees her. So then he lowers, so he motions for her to come up to him. And, and, and th- this is brilliant when you think about it. She's trying to not challenge his authority as much as possible in that situation, but by walking in the door, she's challenging his authority, but she's doing it in a very graceful way so that it's not as much of a threat to him. She's trying to minimize threat and maximize the, the idea that this will work. So here she is standing in the back. The thing I think about is I imagine how she felt back there. Can you imagine that? This is it. Once I've entered those, you know, it's like for a lot of you. Once you enter those double doors, you're in. No one's going to kill you, luckily, but you're in. You get to the donuts, right? I'm in. She walks in the door. She's in the back, and she's just thinking, this is it. This is it. Once I've come through this door, it, it, there's no going back. I can't walk. Oh, sorry, <laughs> all a big misunderstanding. You know, I thought I heard my name, and she walks out. She can't do that. She's in. Because I'm thinking, she's back there and she's thinking, he hasn't asked to see me in over a month now. And he might think, this is a good time to get a new queen. He may act like he cares for her, but how do you know? Seeing her position in his, you can never know. And so it says, he's pleased with her. He, he, he's, he, he holds out the scepter. So she approached and she touched it. Her life is saved. And the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So he sees her, he's pleased, and he immediately says, what is your request? Now, how does he know that? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? Why does she come in that door and risk her life unless she's got something really big on her? on her mind. She wouldn't do it just to ask him how his day's going, right? He knows. He knows what just happened. He's very aware of the fact that he just saved her life. So he knows for her to take that great risk, there has to be a request that's incredibly important. Now stop and think about this because I think this is a good study. This is a good thing for us to think about in terms of things that we can deal with in our lives. You know, we say, we have that saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Think about the power he has. He just granted her life. He just stayed in execution. That's tremendous power. That can be incredibly um, It can make you feel like you're so important and powerful because you have that power. And then he says, what do you want up to half the kingdom? Now, 
you know, when I first read this years and years ago and I first came across Esther, I was like, what in the world? Go for it, Esther. Half the kingdom? Sweet. That would be, you know, he's not saying that, right? It's just, this is metaphorical. This is, this is uh, something that oftentimes kings would do. We see this, we see this in, in, in um, the New Testament with, with Herod to Salome. She dances for him. He says, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. He's not going to give her half the kingdom. This is just a formality to say, I'm willing to be, I'm in a good mood, so tell me what you want, right? When my wife sometimes go out to eat, <clears throat> once a month, we try, no, it's more than that. Um, I'll say, where would you like to go to eat? And she would say, wherever you want. I'll go wherever you want. I'll say, I'll go wherever you want. I'll go wherever you want. I'm, right? So one time years ago, I thought, I'm going to be so smart, you know, because I know where she doesn't want to eat. She goes, I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere with you to eat. And I said, great. I want to go to McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. How, does, how do they stay in business? I don't know. If you work at McDonald's, I'm sorry. That's not a, um, and so, uh, so I knew she, so she goes, well, I'll go anywhere but McDonald's. I was like, oh, you didn't say that the first time. Okay, how about Burger King? <sighs> Anywhere but McDonald's, Wendy's, anywhere but McDonald's. (laughs) I start naming these things. I say, you better give me a place you want to go to because I can name a lot of places. Cookout. I can name a lot of places that you don't want to go to, right? And so this is what he's saying. It's just like, I'll I'll take you anywhere to eat. I'll take it, you know, it's basically, I kind of want to know what you have to say. And so I'm thinking, wow, Esther, this has gone great. This is the time. Ask about the Jews. Tell her, tell him, by the way, I'm a Jew. You've said all the Jews must die, and your pal Haman over there is a total loser, and he's a liar. Just let it, let it fly. But it's interesting because Esther here, she has a plan. This is a brilliant woman. She has a plan. She knows this king. She knows he's impulsive. She knows he's arrogant. She knows he's immature. So she has to play her hand very carefully in this. She'd be a great poker player. All right? And she's showing us courage. The courage that came when Mordecai basically preached the gospel to her. She believed it, and she decided to act accordingly. She asked for prayer and fasting. And here's the other thing she did, if you notice this. And she planned for this. She planned for this moment. Look at verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today for a banquet I have prepared for him. She prepared this banquet ahead of time, banking on the fact that he wouldn't kill her. And so her plan, she's got this plan. She's, she, she's doing what she believed God wants her to do, but she's also doing her part. She's working on it. So courage got her to this point, and now courage is going to enable her to work patiently it's very interesting as we look through this, there's, there's some ironic twists in this. This is a case study of someone who seemingly has no power and who turns out to be the most powerful person in the room. She asked the king and Haman to a banquet she's prepared. She says, if it pleases the king, right? So what is she doing? She's saying, look, I want to please you. I've done something I think will be, you'll love it. If it pleases the king, come to this banquet. And you can imagine, he's like, oh, it does please me, right? So he's, he's, he's like, oh, this is awesome, right? So uh, 
Verse 5, bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. How about that? We need to do what she says. That's such an interesting thing. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So the king orders Haman to join, and I think she's pretty smart. Notice there's alcohol served, because he's shown us already, if you go back to chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's got a problem with alcohol. He does stupid things when he's been drinking. So she's like, this is good wine. Take it. This is good wine. Take it. This is good. You know, she's, she's good. This is just Kool-Aid. Trust me. You know, she's right. And so he's, so, okay. Now this is where for me, I'm thinking, okay, you got him. (laughs) You got him. Lay it on him. Say, you're going to kill the Jews. I'm a Jew. Haman's a liar. He's a bum. Let's give him the boot. Right. And, and, and she doesn't. Because the king now has asked for the second time, what do you want? And he's offered for the second time, I'll give you anything you want. Just tell me. And what does she say? She said, my petition and my request is this. I'm like, yes, yes, give it to him. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, this is pretty smart here because what she's done is he said, what do you want? She said, here's what I want. I want you to come to the banquet tomorrow. Well, he promised to do what she wanted. So now he's got to come. But she still hasn't asked. And she says, so then she frames it. Then I will answer your question. You want to know what your, the answer to your question? Well, you got to come back tomorrow. And I got another banquet. She has maneuvered this guy into a box brilliantly because, and I mean, not just to give it all away, because the next day he's going to tell her again, I'll give you half my kingdom. He's going to promise her three times. She's got him where he, without, without losing face, he can't say no to whatever she asks. This is the game. This is the long game she's playing and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's brilliant. And it's brilliant. She says, my request, you come to this banquet. Come back tomorrow. And he's obligated to that because he said, I'll do what you ask. But he's intrigued because she still hasn't answered the question of what do you want. See, she says, oh, yeah, I'll get to that tomorrow. Sleep on it, pal. Right? I'll tell you tomorrow. And so he agrees. And again, he agrees. Esther arguably the least powerful person in the whole area, the whole, in, in, in this whole, you know, in this whole complex of castle or whatever, you know, the least powerful person. She gets Mordecai, she gets, she, she, I'm trying to think how this works. She agrees with Mordecai and then tells him what to do and he does it. She now has worked this with the king so that he's doing what she wants. And Haman is too, because Haman has no choice in this whole thing. She goes, bring Haman too. King's like, you're coming. Haman's like, yep, got no choice on that one, right? She has got all these people doing what she says. And she's a person supposedly with no power. And this is the brilliance of Esther. This is the beauty of this story. 
By the, tomorrow, the king will have gone to two banquets. He's, he, he will have promised three times to do whatever she wants. He will have asked her three times what she wants. He cannot say no without like, losing face. And face is everything in that culture. In this honor and shame culture, face is everything. So we see here Esther risking her life for her people. And it remind us, reminds us of the greater one to come. It reminds us of Jesus. Jesus approaches the sinless God of the whole universe on behalf of sinful rebels like me. And through his death on the cross, we now have access to the king. You know, we're talking about access to a king here. Because of what Jesus has done, we have access to the king of the universe. And the access that we have is stunning. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All right? This is the access we have. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. The Greek word there for confidence is a beautiful word. It's a word that has this idea that is based on a relationship. And because of that relationship, there is an openness, there is a lack of fear in approaching. This is the original no fear right here. Because we have this confidence. Now, you can go into the throne room of God Almighty and have no fear. And not worry, I'm bringing something that's trivial. God's going to think this is stupid. You know, he's not going to listen. You, you, ha- you have no worry of that. He says you have total access at any time. Access that's based on a relationship, has confidence, has no fear, has openness to say whatever needs to be said. Whatever you want to say. So we go to this throne of grace. Esther is doing all of this. Esther's doing all of this for one request. Our king calls us to ask and keep asking. Jesus commands his people to ask. It's as if he's frustrated with our lack of asking. In Matthew 7, 9 to 11, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Because he's a good God. And so as a church, we need to ask. We need to pray. We need to ask much of God. We need to do it strategically. We need to do it wisely, just like Esther did. She had a plan. It was a wise plan. She had a strategy. It was a brilliant strategy. And her plan is unfolding before us. And this helps us think about living wisely and making good choices in a world where we're aliens and strangers and understanding the world we live in so that we're not foolish, we're not ignorant. It's kind of a, a, a godly shrewdness, I, you could say. In Matthew 10, 16, it's not on your notes or up on the screen. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be wise. 
Be wise in your dealings in this world because we're like Esther. We're like Mordecai. We're aliens. We're strangers. This is not, not our home. We need to take steps of faith sometimes. Sometimes we pray and God just acts. Sometimes, though, we pray and God is acting, but he calls on us to act also. And so we take steps of faith and we act. And this is what's happening in Esther. She's taking steps of faith and God is working behind the scenes. When I was younger and, and our family was just beginning, um, we had this uh, 1985 Dodge Caravan. It was the uh, absolute lowest level of Dodge Caravan that you could buy. It had nothing, you know. And uh, it, those early days, Dodge Caravans first came out with this little four-cylinder engine that was woefully underpowered. You know, you could be driving down the interstate, and if you switched on the air conditioning, you lost 10 miles an hour, and it was like you kicked somebody right in the stomach. It's like, Ugh! and it was like, it start going back up. And and uh, I took that. I was working with teenagers. I took that caravan everywhere. I took it on missions trips. I I took it everywhere, and uh, so at about 150,000 miles, it was making a lot of noises that. I'd take it to the mechanic, and he'd just make the sign of the cross over it and say, bury it, you know, it's, it's, I just read it, it's last rites. And, 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 uh, and so I started making plans to, to buy a car. I knew I couldn't get a new car, but, you know, to buy a newer used car with less than 150,000 miles. And my family was growing, um, we had two kids, and my wife was pregnant, and, um, so I started planning. I was looking at financing, and I was looking at, at, at different vans that could accommodate our family and, and trips and teens and all of that. And uh, someone in the church that I was going to came to me and said, you, uh, you're looking for a van, I heard. And I said, yeah, that white van's dying. He goes, you take that all over the place on, on church stuff, don't you? And I said, yeah, I mean, it's... it's God helped us get that van, and so we want to use it for his work and his glory. And he said, I'm going to buy you a new van. Go pick one. And I said, this is a cool joke if you're... <laughs> and, um, and what was interesting for us was we, when we were looking, we thought, you know, our kids, two of them... It, it, this is good to teach them about praying and coming to God with your needs. And so I said, I said to Derek and to Holly, I said, we're going to pray now. We're going to start praying together for God to help us find a good vehicle that will be reliable and, and help us. And so, you know, Derek prayed, and I forget what he said, but Holly, she's in her bed there at the, where we lived in Courthouse Green at the time, and she's in her little bed there, and she's like, God, we need a van. Please bring it to us tomorrow. So Bev and I walk out of the room, right? And you know how sometimes your kids pray, you walk out of the room going, that was so cute. We're walking around like, oh no. What are we going to do? She thinks it's going to like, bonk, and just be in our driveway. We got to tell her no. And I thought, no, that's not right. Because God could do that, right? But it doesn't happen a lot. And so we decided just to let them keep praying and let her keep praying that way. And it went a few days, and it almost was like she was getting a little upset with God on being late on this van. <laughs> like, God, I've been asking you for this van forever, and <laughs> I'm three days. But yeah. So this person comes up and says, I'm going to buy you one. Go pick one out. 
And so I shopped around, and I know I knew where, and I knew on Gloucester there was a really good deal on a van, a larger van that would fit our growing family and trips and stuff. And I went and I bought it and I brought it home, and I told my daughter, "Look what God dropped in our driveway." And she walked out and she said, "Finally." <laughs> and I just like, and I'm like, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, she's just three. You know, no lightning, please. Um, and God said, I want you to work. I want you to look at financing. I want you to shop around. I want you to, but I'm working in the background. And you can't see it. And I couldn't see it until it just blindsided me. Now, every one of you, I'm not telling you God's going to buy you a vehicle. Because he hasn't, you know, it's not like it's, it repeats itself. All, but I'm telling you this. We have this heavenly father who loves us. And he wants good for us. But sometimes he's working and we can't see it. We can't see it coming. We don't know what he's doing. And so, we see later in this book, Esther's plan does not work exactly how she planned it. But God, just two good words always in the Bible, but God. God works and he does something incredible that's totally unexpected. Jesus assures us that he is with us. He says, therefore, do not fear. Is fear stopping you? Stopping you from serving somewhere? Stopping you from giving? Fear of, of, of your financial situation? Is it stopping you from talking? Is it stopping you in some way? Because at, the point, at this point in the chapter, things are going great. Everything seems to be working except there's the hatred of the enemy. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Right? So I just thinking about this, Haman's walking out with his life is good shirt, right? He's got his life is good shirt on. Things are going great. Nice banquet. Got a big one coming up tomorrow. King's made me second in command. The queen seems to have taken a liking to me, so I'm, I'm in a perfect place. Life is good except there's this guy named Mordecai who refuses to bow or give honor. And this is an actual picture of Mordecai. <laughs> and, and it says, have no fear. Fear the beard. I like that. I like that. I think historically we know that Mordecai was tatted up just like this guy. Um, gosh, why am I even doing this? Just go to the blank screen, Bob. So he went out, he's happy, he's, this is great, and Mordecai, it just kills him to see that guy. It just kills him. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and, and went home, calling together his friends, and, and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, about his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. He's filled with anger. He calls his wife and his friends, and he reminds them of, of how awesome he is, basically. How many sons he has, which is the ultimate thing in that culture. He recounts his riches and his promotions and what a great guy he is. I'm the only one invited to this feast. You know, 
lately, I've been hearing back, and it's just awesome how for, for, for some, of, some of our students, they've been able to eat in homes in the past few weeks. But I think, you know, imagine, imagine when you went to eat in the home, if the host didn't ask you one question about yourself, but just talked about what a great cook he or she was, and how important their job is, and how lucky you are to be at, at their home. That would have gotten old pretty quick. Because if you keep, if you keep having to tell people how great you are, you've got some serious problems psychological issues. And Haman is a perfect example of that. And we see it in verse 13. The, all of this, all of this gives me no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai, I, I lay eyes on him and it just crushes me. This should have been the best day of Haman's life. He has wealth, he has children, he has power, he has access, but it's not enough. His heart is consumed by the praise and applause of others. And so one person, one person doesn't give him praise, and he goes off the deep end. When you live your life for others' approval, this will happen. When you live your life for other people's approval, for other people's strokes, for other people making you feel good, one person has the power to ruin everything for you. Have you ever noticed that before in your life? Sometimes one person does something and it ruins your day. And you ever, you ever stop and think, why am I giving so much power to that person over me? Why do I do that? But we do it. We remember the negatives way more than we remember the positives. And here we see the tender ego of a self-centered person. Haman's functioning God is approval. And this is what brings meaning for his life. And we can all be like Haman more than we'd like to think. Maybe not to this extreme. But let someone take something away from us that we think we deserve. And boom, we just lose it. So ask yourself. And I ask myself too. We're in this together. Am I easily offended by others? Am I easily angered by others? This reveals Haman's heart and it reveals ours. So ask yourself when you're angry and when you're irritated and when you're frustrated and when you're upset... Why am I feeling this way? To what am I looking for, for significance and meaning in my life? What do I desire? What am I living for here? Where do I find ultimate satisfaction? When I'm angry, when I'm upset, when I'm irritated, when I'm frustrated, it's because something is not coming my way that I think I deserve or I want. It's always that. It's always that. Whether it's someone cutting you off uh, 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 in, in, in your car whether it's somebody saying something behind your back at work, you feel like, I don't deserve that. This is what I deserve, and I'm not getting this. And you get angry, and you get frustrated, you get irritated. It happens with your children. It happens with your spouse. It happens with your parents. Even the people you love the most, this can infect that relationship. And as Christians, our hope is in Christ, not in what we do. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. I love that line. Then go and happy, happy, right? This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had a pole set up, right? So what's going on here? You'll see in many translations it says, have a gallows erected so that you can hang him. But see, they didn't hang people by the throat like we think of with a rope. That wasn't what they did. What they did, and we have a lot of evidence for this. We see it in some of the uh, battle scenes. Shennacherib, when, when, he, when he was in Israel, and he, was, he would capture people 
and he would impale them on a stake. So they would hang there, and sometimes it would take them a while to die. So it, it demoralized everyone in the city who was watching. So this is what he's ta- they're talking about. They're talking about something that you impale a person on. They're just making it huge. 50 cubits is just total overkill. Overkill, you're right, whatever. It's totally going beyond. Why? Yeah, and then go your merry way, right? Skip to the banquet. And so... Things were looking good just a moment ago, and now there's a sharp turn. Because Esther's plan is to have the banquet, then ask God for relief for the Jews and Mordecai. Haman's plan is to kill Mordecai before the banquet. So Esther's plan won't work, not like she wants it to. And so we, we have a sharp turn Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, wrote about the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The best plans don't always work. And there are ups and downs in this life. This is real life. Because we have ups and downs in our lives. We see this all the time. And so then the question becomes, do we trust God that he's working even during these radical times of down? Or do we allow the snapshot, moment-by-moment circumstances of our life to control us? For, for many people, and, and I struggle with this myself, you know, circumstances that I find myself in, I go, oh, no, everything's going to be ruined. This is not going to, oh, no. And I get all upset with this moment, not thinking that God's involved in everything overall. He's working. Also, I just want to say something about Haman's friends. He has different friends, to say the least, right? This is their great idea. Some friends get together and play settlers of Catan. His friends get together and figure out how to kill people. Oh, you're mad at him? Impale him. And I don't want to minimize the difficulty of things in your life because we're talking about life and death in this situation. But it can be hard to see God's hand in the, mo- in the, in the moment when you're dealing with difficult things, even little things that are difficult. It is hard to see God working. We often see it best when we look back and see it working over time and we go, oh, I see now what God was doing. When I was in the middle of looking for a van, a van that would be really fit well for my family was out of my price range. And so I had given up on that dream and I was looking for another small van with a tiny engine that just irked me so much. And um, because it didn't occur to me that God had something better. Luckily, He intervened before I bought that crap small van that I was about to buy. Often we see it best over time in looking back. How often have you looked back in different points of your life and said, wow, God was there and I didn't even know it? So we can't allow the moment to mean more than it should mean. We need to look back. We need to see what he's done in the past and trust him. We need to to look forward on the basis of his promises to us. We need to trust that he is good, even when it doesn't look like it, to rest in the fact he is good. I don't understand what's going on now, but he is good. And that can enable us to have hope, even sometimes joy in the most difficult of circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story. We thank you for the courage of Esther of Mordecai, the courage of Mordecai to confront her and the fact that he loved her enough to tell her the truth 
and that she was willing to accept the truth and act upon it, even if it cost her her life. And God, that um, she worked so brilliantly to accomplish this. And Father, we know now as we look into the rest of this book, you were working behind the scenes to bring about a good end because of your promises to your people. Help us to have that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. And I uh, just want you to know, if, if, if you are new, if, you're, if this is your first time or you're a guest here, we don't want you to feel pressured to give. We, this is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their work.